Hi, this is Robert Richman, author of The Culture Blueprint, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Robert Richman. Robert Richman is a culture strategist and was the co-creator of Zappos Insights, an innovative program focused on educating companies on the secrets behind Zappos breakthrough employee culture. He built Zappos Insights from a small website to a thriving multi-million dollar business teaching over 25,000 students per year. Through his work, He's catalyzed employee culture improvements at hundreds of companies. As a leading authority on employee culture for business, Robert Richman is a sought-after keynote speaker at conferences around the world and has been hired to teach culture in person at companies like Google, Toyota, and Eli Lilly. He graduated from Northwestern University with a degree in film, as well as from Georgetown University's leadership coaching program. He's a member of the Transformational Leadership Council, founded by Jack Canfield. Robbie lives outside of San Diego, California. He's here to talk about his book, The Culture Blueprint, and The Culture MBA. And what's more, he appeared on episode 318 of My Quest for the Best. Welcome back, Robbie. Thanks so much, Bill. Hey, it's great to have you here. We're going to get into talking about culture through a number of experiments that you're running and programs that you're offering today. So could you start off and describe from your perspective, what's a way that a company leader, a manager understands culture in a business? That's a great question because that's oftentimes what I start in my programs like the Culture MBA is asking people, what is culture? And oftentimes look at 30 different answers and they don't even have a common definition. And I ask them, what if your employee comes up to you and asks, what is culture? But first you got to even define what culture is and then what's our culture and then how does it work? And what I get them to see is that it's happening no matter what. So you might as well learn about it and master it because it's happening. There are things that are guiding behaviors, decision-making, who we let enter the company, who we don't. And without a real education in culture, all that becomes subconscious and it's subconsciously driven. And at worst, it really becomes politically driven, which is another word for saying personally. It's my personal choice and preferences, etc. And what I've noticed, this is a bit of a contentious topic, but that the companies and cultures that really well define their cultures and say, this is who we are, and this is who we are not. And it's very unique to them that oddly, in my experience, this isn't everybody, but in my experience of what I've seen with that is things like diversity happen naturally because they're so focused on that culture that says, no to these people, yes to these people, that attracts all kinds of diversity of people who have a unified set of principles that they operate by. Can you share an example of how a company defines its culture just because they've made a commitment to doing it? I'm sure there are as many different ways as there are companies, but I'm sure you've also studied examples of people who you hold up as exemplars to really getting their culture down. Yeah, so the minimum viable aspect of a culture, and and let's talk about this in terms of things like whenever people are together, That can be anything from a company to a team to a marriage. That's culture. So what's the minimum element of that? And I would say the minimum element of that is what keeps you in it or really what gets
gets you kicked out of it, right? As these tribal creatures, we're most motivated by, we're not motivated by a little bonus here or there. We're motivated by we want to stay a part of a culture or a group and not get kicked out. So the strongest cultures actually start with being very clear on what gets you kicked out. And so take one of the strongest cultures, which I think is the Navy SEALs. And it's clear from day one of training when you're not even a SEAL, what gets you kicked out. And you are dead clear on, it's not a personal preference. It's not like, I like Bill, let's have him stay here. No, they're like, we will die if we don't have the right people here. So here are the things that you have to do. And if you don't, you are kicked out of this. And they've got a procedure to make sure that happens and they get those people. So that I call it the minimum viable culture is being extremely clear on how you let people in and what gets them kicked out. That's really interesting. From uh, Navy SEAL documentaries and books that I've read, it really puts the onus on the person as well, where they give you all of these very physically, emotionally, and mentally challenging tests. And they say at any point, if this is too hard for you, just ring the bell. And they give people a way to opt out. People who stay say, I sure felt like doing that. And I chose to stay. I chose to go through that pain, learn about myself, find out what my capabilities really were. And those are the people I want around me when we're under fire. Totally. And it really doesn't have to be that dramatic in a business because every day we're under fire. We're being asked to do things at a faster pace. We're being asked to do things with fewer resources. We're being asked to, as in the beginning of the pandemic, pick up everything we have and start operating from home rather than offices. And that was pretty interesting. Some people have a morbid fear of public speaking and they feel like they're going to die. They're so scared up there. So with the Navy SEALs, you actually could die. But I think it's not too dramatic of an example because people do go through situations where they feel like they're going to die, where they feel like something's that important. So yes, Navy SEALs do need a stronger procedure because people will literally die the same way you want doctors to have a stronger procedure to become a doctor than to work at Taco Bell. There's more on the line. But in terms of our emotions of being part of a tribe and a crew, it can feel like death to be rejected in that sense. And that's a real cultural driver. I know I've worked with Silicon Valley companies, and I'm sure you've had the experience too, where people have told you, or you've even heard yourself, that if they don't get this done without any mistakes, I'm going to kill them. Literally, the words were that. Even though they were saying it figuratively, there's still, okay, this is the threshold we must not fall beneath, or there will be consequences. Totally. And termination. It, it's it death. You didn't actually die, but you are terminated. You are gone. Oh, I've been in meetings where I think people wish they could be killed or let go, rather than endure that the punishment and the recrimination and all that followed by you know not meeting a certain demand standard yeah. or even promise that they made themselves. Yeah, and what you're talking about there is shame, which actually they found through some testing in the book Power Versus Force that it's the lowest emotion, meaning it's the one you feel right before you'd commit suicide. And I think it's terrible to shame a person, but I think feeling shame is actually a great culture driver. So for example, one of the things that we did at Zappos was with the survey of the culture the results were made public. So let's say you're a, a manager of a department and everybody really doesn't like it and they don't like your management style. The whole company sees that. And so you'll feel some shame and feel some motivated. I, and nobody came to you and said, why did you do that? You're horrible. Instead, you have an internal driven sense of shame that makes you want to improve. So I think shaming somebody is horrible, but using transparency to develop an internal sense of shame that motivates somebody to change, I think can be a good thing. I think that we could even 
probably use discomfort because people could look at that. And it's not like you say, it's the driver is transparency so that people feel an internal desire to raise the bar and not be in that position again. It's not for them to stay there and feel bad. It's you have choices, learn from your peers who are creating better subcultures within their departments. Totally. So cultures made up of both internal and external factors. So what would you say are three of the most important external forces to include when assessing our own business culture? Just as you look around, as you're thinking about this and listening to the episode, what are some things people should be taking into account? I think it's the danger to look at the external because people become reactive to the external rather it being the internal driver. So one of my favorite stories of what the original leadership at Zappos did was there was a time when the shoe companies wouldn't let Zappos hold the shoes and send them out. They said, we don't trust you as an internet company. We will send them out to customers on your behalf. And they'd get sent out two weeks late, but they'd call Zappos and complain. And then and then Zappos had to say, okay, what are what is most important to us? Yes, somebody might want this brand, but we are a service brand. Are we willing to let go? They want this shoe, but what if we say, no, you can't get that because it's not a high service standard. And in one day, the company cut 25% of brands and revenue and said, we're not working with these companies because our internal standard, our dedication is service. And by committing to that, create an incredible uh, customer experience, incredible culture, a service culture inside. That's where it really starts is inside. And then eventually, externally, those brands reacted and came back. So I think it's externally, it's more like moments of crisis that can determine, okay, what do we really stand for? What hill are we willing to die on? And using external factors or crises or things that happen in the market to help you reflect on what it is that you're committed to regardless of external factors. And I think external factors bring that decision to the forefront. I like the example. And I think that you're also describing a way to use external circumstances to say what isn't aligned with what we want to have happen internally. Yeah. And if I understood correctly, what you did is you said there are maybe one out of four, maybe one out of five and it came into one out of four. But there are a lot of companies we deal with who are expressing that they don't trust us, that are expressing that they want to own that shipping relationship with the customer. And we've told them that we want to be able to meet this standard in order to uphold our own promises to the customers. And they weren't willing to meet it. Repeated conversations. And you simply said, we can't be in a business relationship. And that eliminated it. But it also, it's a perfect reflection because now they're, everyone else who's in a relationship with you as a, a vendor and a supplier said, in order to stay in the culture and not get kicked out, we got to make sure we maintain this. They're not just casually mentioning it. They're saying, this is a critical standard. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why standards, principle standards that you actually enforce. I, I say it in, in my book, reinforce principles drive behavior. What are some of the factors that prevent managers or even groups of managers from enforcing standards? They say something's important and yet they just leave it as an open door rather than as a, a hard line. Well, it's always comes back to that question, I believe, of what gets you kicked out. So if a company is saying, we value work-life balance, but but you're going to get kicked out if you don't come in on the weekends. That's going to drive behaviors. So the question is, are the behaviors aligned with the principles 
in terms of what gets rewarded and what gets punished. If a manager wants to do something, but knows that if they don't do something else, that their job is at stake, they're going to come from a place of self-interest, most of them. Some will leave because it's not according to their principles. That's really hard to do, especially if you've got a family and you're worried about getting another job and that kind of thing like that. You really look to self-preservation. And so that's where I think it's hardest in companies where if you walk up to a manager and ask, what's a fireable offense? And they say harassment or negligence, but they don't cite principles or they don't cite values. What that means is it's usually then connected to what the company does value, which tends to be otherwise one of two things. One is revenue and profit. And the other is loyalty, which is a lot like a mafia type of relationship. So it's more, am I loyal to this president and their decisions and their choices? And that's what keeps me here. Or the company and or really values money. And it's okay, I could be the best person, but if I'm not doing this and that that brings us money, I'm out of here. And I was really happy with my experience where there were times when I didn't meet my numbers. But the only time I really like where, where I got called into this meeting where I was like, oh my gosh, I might really get fired in this moment. They brought up a core value and they said, it looks like you violated this, did you? And we had a discussion about it and it, it came out okay. But I, and I was scared and happy at the same time. I was scared. I'm like, I might be gone, but happy to say, oh my gosh, like they didn't call me in because I didn't make enough money. They called me in because they're concerned that I violated core value. And that's when you know you got a real core value driven culture that's a strong culture. That's a really important question I'm just going to call out is whether you're having conversations with your direct reports about your core values and opening the conversation saying, I just want to reinforce that behavior because you really exemplified this core value of collaboration or of prizing our relationships or putting the customer first, as well as saying, I'm going to start this conversation by saying, I think that you slipped in this area because you weren't applying, using, or valuing this principle that's really critical and essential in our company. So that's a question and a way to get into the conversation that I think a lot of people can benefit from. Was there anything that you reflect back on that you wished had been done differently about that conversation that you had where they said your performance came up short and we think it's due to this and can we have a conversation about it? No, because it actually wasn't a performance issue. It was about the value, uh, I believe, number six of build relationships through open and honest communication. And what I was doing was starting what I called a secret program and I didn't want everybody to know about it initially. And of course, it's like high school. The rumor gets out really fast. And suddenly I'm in a meeting where they said, why did you have a secret meeting? We're a transparent, open, honest. How did you do that and think that was open, right? And I'm like, oh no, you're right. I saw it more like a marketing plan. I don't want the word to get out on this yet. Let's just talk about it, just us people here. And then we're going to launch it here and talk about it. And so I was seeing it from a marketing approach and not wanting to let the cat out of the bag too early. And then they saw that and they said, okay, got it. And so it wasn't performance. There was one that was a performance breakdown. And I remember being really scared to go into that meeting. And the first thing my boss at that time said was, let's talk about this. How did this happen? How can we fix this? And I was like, oh, I just, this sigh of relief. It wasn't, what were you thinking? Why did you do that? Nothing accusatory. It was like, how do we get there? How can we? You're on the same side. It wasn't yeah. confrontational. And when you said earlier about the meeting that was your secret meeting, you suddenly realized, that went against the value of transparency. Oh yeah, the definition of transparency. Robbie, when that happened, was it just one person or were there several other people in the meeting there to help keep 
the focus in the right place or offer other perspectives? Was it a problem solving the vibe you got from that? No, it was more like a trial. It was on that one because it was a serious potential violation. So you all know the bad sign, anybody who's been in in corporate law knows this, is when you're invited by one person to a meeting, but you're surprised that there are several other people there you did not expect. That's when you walk in and you go. And so that's when I knew I was like, oh, crap. And really what, what was being expressed is that you're a valuable employee. We like what you're contributing. However, you're out of line here and we don't want you to risk going and, and bumping against the guardrails that guide our behavior in this company. Yeah, exactly. It's dangerous to you and it's dangerous to us. But foremost, understand it's going to be dangerous to you because we really know what those guardrails are. And I don't think that enough companies have those kinds of conversations where they say it's a bad principle. It's a bad value that we all hold in common here. Have you noticed that as well? And what do you think needs to shift so that people are having these conversations saying this is what our company values and we all have to believe it, honor it and live it in order to succeed here? It's not easy because what you're doing is you're committing to the whole rather than an individual. And we're becomes hard is you've got somebody who makes a lot of money or is a great programmer, but negatively affects the culture. And you start thinking, oh, I don't know what I would do with this person, or I don't know what I would do without this money. And it comes down to some pretty hard decisions to be able to really commit to this. So I don't blame people for not doing culture work. It's not easy. It's I consider my culture work, it's like the health food of the business world. The sexy dessert stuff is here's how to get more money. Here's how to do your marketing better. Here's how to do your social media where you're going to get more customers. That's the sugar. That's the brownie of the business world, the health food world. When somebody's telling you to eat vegetables and things like that, people don't really want that so much. You've got to come to this place where you almost realize it for yourself, where you're like, oh, how can you find that deeper motivation for the long term? How can you think about, okay, how is the company itself more valuable than any individual? And that's not easy to do. And what I get from people, it's interesting how I hear people use religious words when they talk about it. Like one of my clients said, I read your book and I am a culture convert now. Said, I believe in the culture. I have faith that a culture that is good is going to help us. It's not a direct line. There is this measure of belief as in not provable. I can't prove to you that if you improve your culture, your bottom line is going to improve. I can't prove it. I don't have the math for that. I don't have the science for that. There are case studies. There are examples. There are examples of the greatest places to work outperforming the Fortune 500. That doesn't mean it will absolutely work for you. But if you believe it, if you say what, even if this doesn't work, I believe in these values. I believe in this principles. This is the way I want to run my business, even if it doesn't work. That's the level of belief that's really required focus on the culture. I bet that you've thought about the different inflection points that lead people to these situations. Maybe it's offering, maybe it's opening a new office outside the county where they originally started and maybe in a different state. And now they have to manage that in order to keep things working between offices that aren't within walk or a quick drive, you've got to be able to have this shared set of values. Maybe it's time when the original founder decides to sell the company. And now you've got to either embrace the core culture or look at adopting the acquisition company's culture. What are some other points in the growth of a business or decline of a business where culture becomes a more paramount concern? Yeah, it's a great question because they're inflection points. I tell people when they ask 
ask who is my customer, I say, I, I don't have a who, I have a when. It's points in time when you get this. So it's a point, especially when you are hiring, especially beyond that first person, right? When you go from one person to two people, you just doubled in size. Two to four, you just doubled in size. And there becomes a, re- a real inflection point when you start to realize, especially I'd say from my personal experience, really around 25 or so, where you start to say, oh, I it's hard for me to see everything going on. So if I'm not being able to see everything, what am I going to trust beyond me? So there's that inflection point of where you start to realize, oh, I don't have full control over everything. What's going to help me control that? It's culture. When you're growing quickly, that's when you realize it too. Fast growing companies suddenly realize their need for culture. When you acquire a company, you suddenly realize it. When you have an external threat to your business model and you don't know how you're going to solve it, your people will and you need to be able to get the best out of your people and you don't know how. That's a cultural inflection point. These are the moments that you start to see. It, it, it can be these oh no moments that where you see, oh, I'm not in control. Something bigger is in control that's not directly from me. And when you're humble enough to see that and when you stop trying to control, then you start looking, okay, wait a minute, what systems will work? Culture is a system. And that's when you start to get it and see, oh, and, and it's the companies that see that before a crisis point that really get it. And all by, by the way, a crisis point can be growing too quickly. Imagine you're hiring and you get somebody in who does a terrible mistake, gross negligence. It can bring the company down. So people think gro- growth is great, but it's dangerous, especially when you're growing quickly. So it's better to address these in advance of a crisis so that you can be ready for that. Even if you don't make any decisions, just start looking at it, start educating, start realizing it and start assessing what that culture is so that you're ready for that. Something else that occurs to me is that people think as they go through some of these phases, oh, we didn't pay attention to that culture stuff, but I told them to really be on the job next time. And being able to dictate tactics or micromanage decisions will never help you anticipate or bring about that predictability of decision making the way that a common culture will. Have you seen that in your experience as well? The mistake people tend to make on that early stage is they unconsciously are hiring themselves and you want more diversity of in a lot of ways to make sure that you're accounting for your own weaknesses. So I worked with somebody who did a disk test and said, oh my gosh, I've hired my profile 10 times over, not realizing that was his personal preferences that were happening versus what the company needed. And that's when it can really become a problem is when you don't pay attention to the culture, you don't realize you're hiring by your personal preferences of who you like or that they operate the way you like, or that even sometimes that they communicate the way you like. I'm a fast talker. I want to be around fast talkers. I like moving at that kind of speed. But for certain things, you might need a slower thinker to do certain things. And entrepreneurs constantly, they'll oftentimes hire more entrepreneurs. But you oftentimes want somebody who doesn't want to be an entrepreneur, who doesn't have that mindset so that they stay a long time and say, I want to be with this company forever versus somebody who's going to learn a lot and then go start another company. So it's this is what I've run up against and seen as a barrier. It's unconscious 
biases to, to hiring yourself over again. That's a great point. And I bet you a lot of people have just subconsciously or subaudibly gulped as they think of the people who are reporting to them, their direct reports, or even their last few hires and how similar, how many similarities there are. Now, you're also working on a program to take people through this experience of identifying some of these symptoms and equipping them with the tools. You call it the culture MBA. Can you tell me what that is and how you've designed it? Yeah. So it really came out of this uh, this pandemic period when I stopped traveling around the world speaking and had time to think, okay, how can I do more virtually? How can I help more people? And I started a cohort of 10 people called the Culture MBA to take them through the step-by-step of everything I've learned in culture for the past 12 years and really went about it with this, I call it like a Socratic approach of asking people to think first. So rather than hand feeding information, just saying things like, okay, well, have you thought about what culture is? And what is driving culture? And what is the biggest driver of culture? What is the currency of culture? What holds a culture together? And you start thinking about these and you realize you really don't know or that you really haven't thought about it. And oftentimes their answers will be something that's really not it. And I said, don't worry, you didn't know this. It's taken me 10 years to realize what that currency of culture is, what that leverage factor is, um, what that minimum viable culture is that I was talking about before and put that into a program with the intention to also make it into something more scalable, such as a video-based type of course with checklists, et cetera, such that people can learn this education to understand what culture really is. Because like I said, my belief is that culture is happening whether you like it or not, whether you see it or not. It's either happening consciously or unconsciously. You're either explicitly setting the culture or implicitly where you're making assumptions. So my intention with it was to wake people up about the game of culture that they're already playing, but don't even realize it. And once you see the game you're playing, then you can master it. And people really wake up to that. I just did a speech recently for a Salesforce executive roundtable of their customers. And they said it was one of their most engaged ones ever. And one of the women at the end said that she felt literally spiritually renewed after it. And I think that's the feeling when it's not a motivational speech. It's not a like, hurrah, yeah, oh my gosh, I keep going. It's way more of a, let me let you in on the secret about how this really works. And there's a bit of a relief when you're like, oh, thank God, I've been playing a game. I didn't know the rules. Now that I know the rules, I can win the game. Yeah, so that you don't step outside the baselines or something that's required in order to not make mistakes within the culture and then to define it so it's easier for other people to succeed. Totally. From the runs with the cohorts you've had so far, what are participants getting out of it? What have they reported to you? Yeah, they see things differently. They see how they've been unconsciously making decisions, that they're guided by their personal preference, or even just how their complaints about it. You think it's about a certain person. You're like, oh, this person's dragging me down. But then when you start to see in things systematically, I, I think one of the greatest quotes from good to great, I believe, was that they that a great leader gives credit to the team when things go well, personal responsibility when things don't, and starts to realize, okay, how can I systematically shift this? So it's hearing from them that it's a relief to see, oh, this is something I've been so frustrated with my people and think it's my people's fault but it's really a systematic error that can be fixed. And perhaps as easily by establishing a policy or making something clear and taking responsibility for it. Totally. Because I bet participants have suddenly realized or become aware of, maybe it's just the culture is just this close to being a more ideal state if we just make some of the things that are implicit and unclear, explicit and concrete. Exactly. What's something that surprised you 
as the people were going through the course? What's an insight or something that you gained or something that you would do differently based upon the feedback that you got so far? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's certainly, it's interesting because this method of making people think first, I'll have to admit, it came out of me being bored because I was bored. You felt bored. And then you said, what what would be stimulating and fun? And then this is part of what came out of that discussion with yourself. Exactly. Like I'm tired of just talking and talking. Let's make this into a game itself. Here's a riddle for you. How would you solve it? Think about it. And it just made it more interesting for me and it made it way more valuable for them. So So it was surprising to see, oh, this is actually less work to do it this way. And it's of more value to people. And what's something you're excited about to contrast the boredom? What's something you're excited about in your work right now? Yeah, I'm excited to, well, there's a bunch of things. I I just love this, this idea of waking people up to reality of what's going on. And pretty much every kind of venture that I'm working on has that type of theme of what is an experience I can do to create people where they see things clearly. And it excites me to have something that scales and grows where, so for example, before I had the book, The Culture Blueprint, I didn't have anything to do that. And right now I I don't at this exact moment have that course, probably by the time this comes out, it'll be ready, but to have a way to continue people grow, people will read the book and say, what do I do now? And I haven't had that yet of being able to scale and grow and help more people and help them wake up to it, help them realize that it's going to give them more energy. That's what I think is the, I know I've done my work well when someone says, it's not just my business that improved. It's my life. It's now I go home and I feel like I got a lot of energy rather than feeling drained by my work. And where I really, I, I, I feel like this real sense of, wow, this is actually really working is when somebody says to me, my, my wife or my husband noticed the difference. And they say, you seem so much happier. You seem like better energy. And so the culture work that you do on your company can improve your family's life. Like that's really cool to me. That's a powerful ripple effect. And it's one that people acknowledge not as much when things go well, but certainly our spouses understand when things are not going well at work, our significant others, our family members, even our pets. So when we are pissed off, angry, unsettled, depressed about work, feeling powerless about what we can change, what we can't change. But I love the fact that you are approaching this and see one of the metrics of your own success as when people objectively feel like things are going well and then get the report from their loved ones, you just seem happier about your work. Yeah, totally. Now, Robbie, you've been on my quest for the best before. I have a special lightning round for you. Are you ready? Go for it. All right. So who's a friend you've known for more years that you haven't known each other? And what does that relationship mean to you? The first thing to mind is probably my oldest friend, Jared. It, it's so interesting. We're, we're so different that I think if we didn't grow up together, we wouldn't be friends, which is interesting to me. Like when you have somebody in your life where you're like, if I met them now, I don't think we'd be <laughs> friends at all. But we've got such a shared history that I love. One of my favorite comments I get from people is when they say, I can't believe you're friends with that person. I didn't expect that at all. And that, that I definitely feel the most with him where it's amazing when you've got friends where you have sense that it doesn't matter what I do or say, they're going to be there. And that's something to really lean on. And I'd say that it's, there's this principle that I'm working on on using in my future culture work about a datum that I actually found out about from this interesting book called Problems at Work. And it was talking about how nobody really talks about the singular of the word data, which is datum. And the idea of a datum is a single data point. If you think about it, imagine if you're in a room where everything is flying, there's not a single thing staying still. You'll probably feel totally disoriented 
disoriented, nauseous. What is this reality? Everything's changing. Everything's moving. But if you took one chair that was in the center of that that didn't move, you'd feel totally centered and grounded and almost looking at everything like art because you've got this unmovable datum right there to help you orient to everything else. And that's a concept that really fascinates me in a lot of ways. I just said it for friendship, right? No matter what's happening in this world, I, I can rely on my friend Jared right there. I think the datum for companies, you want to take a guess? I'll go, I'll put you, what do you think the datum point for companies is? I think that many companies are looking at stability and growth. I think they're looking at their sales numbers as their datum. What's So what is the most absolute stable thing that you can rely on regardless? Regardless, what is the most stable thing? I think it would be the leadership of the group. Leadership can change. The leadership can just suddenly leave. They could bring in a new one. I think it's one of the things you want to get and then hang on to the most, but that's not what you're asking. You're asking this one is the, unmovable, unshakable. The company name. They could change the name. You've seen for sure. Verizon or what used to be Pac Bell or whatever like that. They can change the name. All right. Well, what's the datum, the grounding point that you found? The grounding point I found that connects everyone. Because think about what a culture is. Everything is moving around. Everything, right? And you've got everything different. Right? right? Different salaries, different ages, different skill levels. There's so much difference. Core value hopefully are one, but even those can change. After four years, you might go, you know what? We need new value. So the datum has to be something totally unshakable. And the point that I found that is unshakable, it's time. So right now, would you disagree with me that it's 49 minutes past the hour? No. We're in complete agreement. That is our shared reality. That's the only datum point I've seen that no matter who you are, we can agree is that a shared data point reality. So I found that companies and organizations, and especially the military, that has a tremendous orientation and respect around time is a very strong culture. When they all show up exactly on time, when they deliver something on time when they said they would, when they end something on time when they said they would end that, versus those where they treat this datum point as subjective. Where you think it's okay to be five minutes late, I think it's okay to be eight minutes late. Somebody thinks it's not okay at all. So we're orienting ourselves differently as if this datum point was subjective, but it's not. It's reality. So if we all treat it as reality and all orient ourselves around that datum point, it gathers the entire- That's really powerful because now you have a starting point that is unarguable. Right. And that's an example of what I was talking about, this structure of how I, I teach this is I ask and I say, what do you think that is. And it makes you think and it makes you think and then you're craving that answer. And then when you finally see that, it's like, yeah. And it's more because we talk a lot of times about improving your relationship with a value, improving your relationship with your coworkers. When's the last time we were asked to improve our relationship with time? Yep. And that was what we learned in the Zappos program because the training, like our Navy SEAL style training is you had to show up at 7 a.m. every day or you were cut. 7.03, one day you're gone. You are just gone. So it's built into what gets you kicked out. And now it's a standard. And now you know that. And we're all united around that standard. So think about something that you do now or that now that you wished you'd learned 20 years ago. What would that be? Oh my gosh, it would be the power of compounding interest investments. Oh geez, the amount of money I've wasted is just, it's, so I knew I didn't do it, so I didn't really know. What's a book you've read recently that you've discussed with another advisor, a client, or life partner? I've written, on the corporate level, I've really loved a book called A World Without Email. It's an amazing book by Cal Newport who did deep work. I think it's an amazing think piece 
on the future of work. And Cal said, okay, rather than thinking, how do we optimize email or Slack too, for that matter? It's what if we didn't have it? What would it look like? And the examples that he gives in that book and gets you to think systematically and really thinking about the company as an organism and how it can operate rather than this dark side of the hive mind, which is just send messages everywhere, overwhelming people. Really great book I found. And for you, Robbie, what lives right now in the space between fear and excitement in your life? It's a great question. I'd say I'm I'm really finding it around this world of Bitcoin at the moment. There's a lot of both of that in, in that world of learning how it operates, of what the principles are of this community that I have a lot of mixed feelings, a lot of energy is there, a lot of potential disruption. And so going into that whole world and learning about it, I definitely have found a lot of fear and excitement. Yeah, as well as myths and misinformation. All of it, every, all of it. Robbie, you've shared so many great ideas today on my quest for the best. I want to thank you so much for bringing us the results of the MBA experience and the culture MBA to us and helping us learn about some of the ways that you're asking questions to provoke us to think and really challenge ourselves to come up with answers and want the answers regardless of where they lead. I want to thank you for bringing out that analogy of how thinking about your culture really helps you understand the rules of the game that you're already playing and you don't have a choice not to play. But once you understand the rules, now you can succeed and help others succeed in the company as well. We talked about the important inflection points so that the people who are going through certain phases of their company, it's a when that describes when they're open the most or have the greatest need for understanding culture and mastering it rather than particular external force. And for these and so many more reasons, Robbie, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. You always bring such great insights and interesting thoughts for people to listen to and learn from. Before Thanks. We, hey, it's a pleasure. Before we say goodbye for now, where can people go to find out more about you and your work online? Robert Richmond. Dot com. That's R-I-C-H-M-A-N, robertrichman.com. I call you Robbie, but uh-huh. Robbie Richman, thank you again so much for joining me on my quest for the best. We're going to link to robertrichman.com as well as the Culture Blueprint and the Culture MBA, as well as your social media so that people find it super easy by going to the show notes to keep up with what you're, go- what you're doing and what's going on in your work and your life. Thank you so much. Thanks once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thanks again. Thanks again, Bill. I thought that was the outro. And thank you so much. Hi, this is Bill. And I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app. So you never miss an episode full of stories, tips and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.